Good morning, everyone. My name is Mark. I wanted to pick up a little, little bit on, on a part of the Buddha's life story that we sometimes skip over a little bit. Usually, um, in telling the Buddha's story, there's, there's a little bit on, on his birth, on his, his life being indulged with all the pleasures available to him until he, he saw what suffering really looked like, seeing sickness, old age, death, uh, rebirth over and over again. And then there's a, then eventually there's wonderful stories about what it was like right before he became enlightened and all the stories that he shared after he was, as he was teaching from 35 until his death in his 70s. But there's a six-year period where he tried out a lot of different religions and he kind of, well, relig religious movements, uh, different spiritual paths. He kind of jumped around a little bit. I think it's it's a worthwhile thing to investigate because we generally also uh, we're all here we're all motivated we're all interested in, in exploring ourselves in some way and usually we don't usually just try out one religion or just one little corner of, of a religion we usually do a little hunting in a way and we do we try out things we see where it takes us and sometimes we turn we turn around or we completely you know open a new chapter and what what our exploration means to us evolves over our lifetimes uh, and that happened to some degree with, with Siddhartha, with the Buddha, before he was Buddha over those six years. And I'm a bit of a, I'm not a, a professional historian, but I'm a bit of a, I have a, a touch of me is, is into history and a touch of me is, uh, is, is into stories. So I, I like, so it's a, a nice thing to think about the stories of his lifetime as, as a kind of a reflection point. So I'm going to, if, if you're interested, uh, the thing that I use to, to review, this is a, a lovely little book called The Historical Buddha. It's been out of print, I think, since the, I don't know, for a while now. But it's written by a German, and, and it's been translated in English. He's a historian, and he really devoured all of the Buddhist literature and the contemporary Indian literature that was relevant to the story of the Buddha. And um, what's nice is he has a touch of doubt for anything mystical and, and magical. So if, if you're a bit of a, a skeptic or a bit of want to be in touch with, with common sense reality, this is this is kind of like Jefferson's Bible. It takes out all the magical, all of the uh, the kind of larger-than-life stories and boils it down to something we can all relate to as far as a, a history of the Buddha. So, so to pick up, just to refresh, so... In the story where Harvey left us off last time, the Buddha had uh, had had seen you know suffering in all of its forms, had seen what it really looks like as far as someone becoming ill, someone becoming uh, decrepit and old, and then what death actually looks like, something he hadn't even seen before. And he he really became awakened to see that just staying in pleasures of life, having you know a beautiful time, having wonderful food, wonderful company, youth, exuberance wasn't all as cracked up to be. And he really felt a really strong penetrating desire to know why it happens so that he can, in knowing that, can escape, can see where does it come from? Can I, can I end that forever? Not just temporarily kind of escape, you know, discomfort, um, physical or psychological. And that was, that was his driving point. He wanted to know it for himself and he wanted to know it for other people so he could share it with other people. And so at the time, I think it, just to get into the history side of things, there were, there were a few entrees that were available to him at the time. So one thing that he probably grew up seeing in in the courts where he where he grew up was was Vedic uh, Hinduism. So like Vedic Brahmanical worship, and that was was based on the Vedas, which had been a, a actually sounds like a very spiritually spiritually moving tradition of some beautiful hymns praising the the gods, the deities. You know, probably a few hundred years before his time was a very devotional and very engaged uh, religion. But by the time of the Buddha, had become a very mechanical and maybe even a um, in a kind of a, a script process where there were gods that controlled uh, your own life, the the world around you, and you had to honor them and you had to praise them. And so there was the the Brahmins that really knew the formula. 
that knew the the Vedas, and and you you'd come and you would you'd hire them, and they would perform rituals for for you in in honor of you. It was worshiping a pantheon of gods that weren't necessarily something that you that you were in touch with, that you had a living relationship with. So that was that was one thing of of his childhood, probably. It's not something he got too involved with after he left. There was already a a, a bustling movement of of kind of anti-establishment movements going on for major traditions. There there was uh, already so if, if you know much about Indian religion, something called the Upanishads. The catchphrase, I guess, would be the Atman is the Brahman, knowing that there is some spiritual power agency. Uh, indestructible truth in you that reflects the universal truth, something that that goes beyond death, that goes beyond every every situation, every kind of trial and tribulation you might have. That was one kind of traditional movement. That was pretty. It was almost like Martin Luther. It was it was very rejecting in a way of of the economic establishment of the Brahmins that you could have the truth in yourself and that you could learn it. There was also the materialists. So just like how we knew the materialists, if you ever studied Greek philosophy. This, there was this idea that the only true thing that you can ever get at is sensual pleasure and, se- and direct sensual, uh, you know, sensory contact. So so colors, sights, sounds, uh, hedonic pleasure was the only true thing. And anything beyond that was not worth your time. You know, g- even giving up, you know, uh, thinking about things, morality, philosophical debate, thinking about higher truth or meaning wouldn't get anywhere necessarily. It wasn't anything that was tangible. So there was an active avoidance of it and really just enjoying there's a phrase in the book you know you know and enjoy your rice and you should enjoy your ghee even if you're in debt and i think that was kind of like our maybe like a, a nice like a nice vodka or a nice you know fancy dinner out even if even if you can't pay for it you should still enjoy it because it's the only thing you can tangibly do there was also a movement of the ascetics uh the sense that um there were two kind of trends with the ascetics there was a sense that from the idea of karma that you know that rebirth happens you're always stuck and rebirth life to life based on bad actions in the past, you know, not honoring your parents or being out of anger or acting out of desire. Um, and that you had to kind of clear out the, the, the karma, you know, store bank, essentially. And so they would practice, set it, they would deny themselves pleasure, anything that could be seen as desirous or, or maybe creating more karma. And so you had to clear out the bank. But there's also the other side that they kind of developing, kind of like if you've heard of kundalini yoga, developing some power, some potency to help, you know, escape the whole cycles. But there's a lot of repressing. So inwardly repressing, you know, thoughts about pleasant thoughts, to, you know, thinking about desires, thinking about hatred, and also outward practices, really starving yourself. The Buddha described at one point when he, he could see, you know, he could, he could touch his spine through his, from his belly button, that his ribs were all cracked. You were, this was a really extreme asceticism. And there was also another tradition, too, of, of the, the wanderers, the people who gave up just the, the, the normal expectations for, um, for, uh, for moving through, um, through your responsibilities as, as a son as a parent, as, as a grandparent, um, as someone with, with a responsibility in their jobs and wandering. There were a lot of different flavors of that. Some people would start early. Some people would start later in life. This is maybe similar to, 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 the, to our, our experience with the hippies, a sense of that we totally forgoing any sense of commitment as, as an oppression. So these were the, the four kind of, the four alternative entrees available to him. And he, he, did, he did spend some time with a good few of them, especially with some Upanishadic teachers and with, also with the ascetics as well. So he had two teachers that he practiced with very in-depth initially after he left. He did take up some, some basic ascetic practices, but was really studying meditative absorptions or really honing in mental experience in a very purified, calm, 
and stable way. The word is dhyana, and, and there were Hindu and also in Buddhist literature, there the whole list of different levels. There's there, And even the first one is, is kind of, you know, like a very special experience that we have only a few times in our life, just naturally. There's a story about when the Buddha was very young that he was sitting underneath in, in an apple orchard. His mind was very serene and calm, and, you know, he could hear the wind. He wasn't necessarily, it, it, was, it was an experience that was very flowing. He felt at ease. Things seemed very clear. And there wasn't a lot of a lot of kind of rumbling of emotions or thoughts. It was very, it was very still. And he described this actually as the kind of the first type of absorption, the first level. I think we've all probably had that at some point in our life. Um, uh, I know for me, uh, one place of that kind of serenity is kind of out in, for me, I have a sweet spot for, for the Big Bend area, for, for the National Park, for, for New Mexico, the Southwest. There's just, you'll drive out, you'll be out of the city, you'll just pull off the side of the road and there's, there's just a vastness. You can see the desert up close, you can see up to 100 miles away, the sky is vast. There's some vast mountains in the distance. Even just turning off the car just to stop, it's all of a sudden you realize the car was bumbling, you know, cacophony of noises. Even though you didn't even have the radio on, you weren't thinking about things, even that is relatively still for our daily life. And you can really, you can very settle into that. I think it's something that we can all relate to. It's a very beautiful experience. But the idea was to go, you know, 10 times further into that experience. And so he talked about studying with two different teachers in different ways, getting to a place of, of such a mental clarity of there was there was nothing there or that there was an edge of, there wasn't nothing and there wasn't anything else, that there was just this this stability of mind that was totally, not even like desired. I mean, it goes even beyond desired, but a, a total crispness and clarity. But still didn't, at the end of the day, it didn't answer his question of why am I suffering? Why did I, why did I get to a place of suffering? Why will I suffer again in the future? It was a, a wonderful state that was a replacement, that it was something that you can experience on the side as, as a refresher, as a way to escape. But it wasn't a, a permanent state. It wasn't something, technical arguments that he saw wouldn't take him, once he died again, even if it was a million years later, there would still be patterns that would pull him back in eventually to, to crave something, to be angry at something. And it would pull back in that cycle of, of rebirth, of being stuck in, in, in the glum. And so he, so he, he for one, he actually got to a place with two different teachers where uh, the first time he was considered the equal and was offered essentially like, like an equal share in, in the property of the, of the tradition and was offered, you're my equal, you can teach along with me. And he, again, he said, this wasn't enough. And he left and he let go. He got to another teacher and who said, you're even better than me and you can take over. I'm going to hand it all over to you. But again, he uh, he didn't give in to that pride of it, and he said, "This isn't what I was really looking for." Even though, even though it was totally, you could say, seductive in a very s subtle sense, it wasn't his end goal. It was so, and that's something I know for for myself that I can relate to. That there's some beautiful things as we engage in in our spiritual practice. Wonderful things that develop confidence, that develop inspiration, that really can motivate us. That make it fun to do, to to in endeavor in spiritual practice by ourselves, to do it as a community. And those things are wonderful. Um, but at the same time, is that what we're really aiming for? Is that is that the end all be all? And is there something else that we want to we want to offer to ourselves or or to other people? And to just to be aware that 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 is a possible detour or a possible maybe even you could say like side path, side quest, whatever you want to call it. That's something that can come along the path, but it can go in a very different direction. The Buddha decided not to follow that path. So then he he picked up for a while uh, ascetic practices, like hardcore ascetic practices. Like it's very hard for us to relate to this in any physical way. I mean, this was you know not eating uh, for weeks. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to believe. You know, the, the way he described it, it's it's nearly it's it's physiologically possible, perhaps, but 
cutting it really close. I mean, he was he was skin and bones. He was turning all different shades of color that we don't normally look. His bones were cracking. He he couldn't stand up. He was he was oozing in many places. His his butt was was essentially just like a hard pancake. This was like extreme asceticism. And they were they're both inward and, and outward practices. Um, he did this for years. Uh, along with he had a five other five five other buddies that came along with him. The five other ascetics. Um, there were inward practices like you know like uh, rejecting certain types of thoughts. There were inward practices like holding your breath for for as long as you possibly could and doing this day in and day out, day in and day out. He found though that this was was very jarring. I mean, physically, like he couldn't even sit still. He described like even if like a the calmest deer would walk by, uh, and you know, just in a very peaceful way, he, it would startle him. His body was so disrupted, so anxious or on edge that he couldn't even sit still. And it was it was very it was completely disrupting his ability to be to be present, to be stable, to be calm. It wasn't the kind of it didn't generate any kind of calm like he had before, any clarity. It was actually even more more confusing. And he tried that for he tried these practices for years. And you can actually go to to one of the caves right outside of um, Bodhgaya where he practiced did this these practices for some time in a cave. It's a pretty it's a pretty pretty austere place actually. It's you know you you walk through you get through the jungle and you're going through I mean like really like rural India and you see like you're seeing real poverty and real you know what India probably looked like 200 years ago still. And then, then you get up there and people know that there that there are. Buddhist practitioners coming in. There's, I mean, like half a, like a quarter of a mile of beggars lined up giving, I mean, like really putting on g- genuinely, maybe not um, some of them, I'm not sure, but, you know, really putting on, you know, a show of, of suffering and sorrow, hoping to, to, you know, to not on force to get for, for you to feel moved to give, uh, to donate to them. You have to go beyond the haze because there's a lot of haze there unless it's raining. And if it's raining, then it's raining all the time. So regardless, it's either w- way too wet or way too dry and, and dusty and you get up in there, it's just crags and rocks and inside the cave is there from all the worship it's just black with soot from all the candles and there's a cacophony of of people practicing. there it is it does have that kind of energy and there's actually a statue inside of sometimes you'll see statues of the buddha completely emaciated and so there's there's that statue in there so he he, he forewent that as well he decided that you know going going the route of completely rejecting everything wasn't getting me anywhere. Actually, if anything, I was he didn't have that clarity of mind in which to be present to make any kind of investigation. He was the suffering inwardly and outwardly uh, wasn't necessarily getting. He was just indulging in in kind of recreating the suffering uh, in a different way than he was before. Uh, it was it was kind of the other ex- another extreme. And so he decided to go for the middle way. And the way that he indulged himself was was some rice milk, a little bit of kheer. So not exactly, you know, your 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 nice glass of wine and a nice movie when you get home. A little bit, a little bit, not as not as indulgent, perhaps, as, as what we think as, as treating yourself. But he treated himself, and this was actually for his followers. Was they were pissed. They 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 thought, oh, he's he's totally for, he's totally forgotten this path. He's totally rejected everything we're about. He's he's gone back to to the land of the living. He's gone back to the land of indulgence, and they wrote him off. And he wouldn't meet them again until he taught his first sermon sometime later a, a good few days uh, of travel from there but so he so he went and he met uh, Su, Sujata or Sujata uh, who is who is a nice woman who is on the side of a bank which you can go to um, uh, it's another holy place near Bodhgaya he walked he walked down it was probably took him I mean it's I, I made that walk and it was in a couple hours so I imagine it took him probably half a day or so given how weak he was maybe even a whole day she gave him a bowl of rice milk and he he nourished his body and he decided you know I've I've tried everything that's available I'm going to sit down and I'm not going to get up until I have gotten to the root of suffering until I've I've really understood with with wisdom and really dedicate himself to the whole reason that he had that he wanted way back when when he saw the suffering in in the three forms i'm not going to get up until i definitively have understood it and have escaped it 
And he said, like, if I die, great, then I die. And that's that's a lot of dedication right there. He he went through a lot of ways of trying out what he thought would get him there. I mean, he tried for years and years, almost killed himself many times, and really got himself to the peak of, of other paths, you know, indulging in these pristine states and completely destroying his body and didn't get anywhere. And he didn't, he had really put himself at the far ends, the, 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 the finest of fine mental states, the, the most extreme kind of physical you know, depredation. The whole spectrum he'd gone through, he didn't know what, he, you know, nothing had, had gotten to, to him that place. And so he sat down with that dedication with complete, you know, with a complete strength of mind and said, I'm not going to get up. And this is what's most important to me. If I die, and I, there's nothing else in my life that I'd, that I'd rather do. So if my life ends, my life ends. So he sat down with that. And eventually he got enlightened within, you know, not, not too long. It didn't take him like weeks or months. It took him, you know, about a day, more or less. It's not so bad. If only we could all do that. Mm-hmm. And that story is, is a wonderful story that could go on for a few hours. So I don't really want to, to open up that chapter too much. But by sitting down, he some important things was that he did want some clarity of mind. So his mind wasn't jumping around, that he could really sit down with some patience with himself, some compassion for for himself, for his experience, and look at it right in the right in the eye. To look really I mean in not just you know, not just to say, oh, this pain is here, but to really sit with it, to acknowledge it, and to not to not get dragged into it, not need to destroy it or suppress it, not need to wish it away with some finer state to replace it, but to really look at what was going on. And there's there's a point in the story where uh, right before he that moment happened where he where everything unfolded and, and, and enlightenment became true for him where the there was either metaphorical or real mara which was the embodiment of of death and of everything that that encompasses bringing you to death so desire hatred all the all emotional types all desire you know all kind of you know entrapments and distractions came at him and through beautiful people at him hoping to 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 indulge him essentially you know, through um, all kinds of noise and crack cracks and thunders war people with spears you know like the whole the whole gamut of destruction and in fear and he didn't budge and then mara came at him and asked what what gives you the right to sit here he says well i, I know i've i have you know for for eons um been practicing you know purifying my mind, developing good actions and good intentions. And finally, I've come to this place to have realization. And Mara says, like, oh, I've done that too. So what's, who, you know, I've got people to, to witness for me. And he, he referred to all the people that he'd thrown at him and asked the Buddha, well, what do you have as a witness? And that's when he touched the earth with his, with his right hand. So in, in the picture here, he touched the earth and said, the earth is my witness. And then the whole earth shook and rattled and thundered. And Mara, you know, basically like f- freaked out and ran away at that point. And so that was, that was the moment of really showing, demonstrating his groundedness and his, his stability of, of his realization. And he did that by, by not necessarily having to run away from destroying. He sat as, as, these, as these emotions, these things came, came at him. Uh, it, it didn't make him run away. It didn't make him have to destroy them. These are things that he could witness, that he could bear. And by doing so was, was part of the formula for getting to that wisdom. If you enjoyed this teaching, please visit our website, dawnmountain.org, to subscribe to this course and find other great Dharma offerings. May all beings always have happiness in its causes. May all beings always be free of pain in its causes.